Hello, and welcome to this PERC podcast. My name is Will Davis. I'm the director of the Political Economy Research Center, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Joseph Vergel. Joseph Vergel is professor of modern German literature, cultural studies, and media at the Humboldt University in Berlin, and is currently a visiting professor of German at Princeton University. His books include Place of Violence, Kafka's Literary Ethics, and Law and Judgment, Contributions to a Theory of Politics. In relation to political economy, he is also author of The Spectre of Capital, published in 2014, and The Ascendancy of Finance, published in 2017. These are works which seek to put the political and economic crises of the last 15 years back into a much longer historical and intellectual context, and to do so by drawing quite liberally from across the humanities, social sciences, history of science, and so on. Many listeners will be familiar in particular with the ascendancy of finance, which shows how from the dawn of the modern state, sovereignty has been shared between political centres of power and financial markets with central banks as the glue binding the two together. A thesis that has, I think, taken on a renewed pertinence once more in the last few weeks as central banks reflect on how to respond to a weakening banking sector. The book that we will be discussing today was published in German in late 2021 and recently appeared in English as Capital and Ressentiment, published by Polity. And this book continues in the style of the spectre of capital and the ascendancy of finance by combining aspects of economic history with analysis of technology and philosophy to tackle problems of great contemporary urgency by putting them into a much wider context of modernity. What uh, it seems to me distinguishes this latest book is its concern with a slightly different problem that has swept liberal democracies over the last decade, uh, which is experienced as a, a kind of epistemological collapse, uh, too often casually blamed on Facebook or Russia or ruthless conservative campaign machines. Uh, but there has obviously been a problem that has been named as things like post-truth or fake news uh, and which have been prominently entangled with the rise of various populist or nationalist political agendas and leaders. Um, now, as I, I'm sure we will explore, the analysis in capital and ressentiment is a far more nuanced historical and philosophical one than many which emerged in the immediate aftermath of events such as the Trump victory or Brexit referendum uh, and so on. Um, but what I find so intriguing about it is that it gets to the very heart of how finance and computation have come to dictate the terms and language of our politics today. So uh, Joseph Vergel, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I just wonder if we could start where I just left off, really, um, which is to think a bit about the historical context of this book and what prompted it. Because although I, I, um, I should clarify that it doesn't present itself in these terms, um, it, it, it wears its historical context quite lightly, but it feels like a book that emerged in response to uh, that perceived crisis of liberalism in the mid-2010s that was simultaneously a, a, a crisis of of liberal democracy, but also at least as, as experienced by liberals in particular, um, a crisis of uh, of fact and of truth that was exploited quite prominently by reactionaries. Am I right in that assessment? Does, does that kind of provide some of the backdrop to this? Yes, I think this is uh, uh, the most important context. Uh, so it's a post-crisis situation, uh, crisis of 2007 and 2008, and it's uh, the emergence, the uh, yeah, the uh, emergence of um, um, of new uh, xenophobic, of new right-wing movements all over Western countries. Uh, you had it, uh, for example, in the Tea Party, United States after 2008. You had it also in UKIP and uh, the result of the Brexit, but 
that the same movements happened, uh, for example, in uh, Germany with the Alternative for Deutschland, Alternative for Germany. Uh, and uh, it was a very interesting situation that uh, um, um, a special kind of financial and banking crisis on the one hand side and a movement of the far right of xenophobic uh, uh, parties uh, uh, entangled uh, uh, each uh, one to each other. Um, so, but there was also, I think, I mean, you know, as we'll, as we'll go on to talk about, I mean, there is, uh, there was that, that, that phenomenon that got called variously things like post-truth, fake news, questions of trolls and, and this sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, your your analysis does begin in the book with a kind of an epistemological analysis. Mm. And uh, uh, this is one of the first theses of the, the book, um, uh, the process of financialization mm. and uh, a long term, and I would say uh, even since early modern times, a long term um, uh, symbiosis or fusion or merger between uh, information technologies on the one hand and financial economy on the other hand. Uh, the, the, this begins already in early, early modern times with postal services. Uh, mm. uh, it is... Um, uh, uh, documented by uh, the invention of the telegraph and the telephone. Um, and uh, at latest in the 60s, uh, we have also uh, an adjustment of financial theory to information theory. Mm. Uh, and this was the condition under which um, financial market could be implemented in information technologies, uh, in the internet, in uh, algorithmic trade. Yeah, um, when I was when I was reading the book, I was I was thinking a bit about some of uh, what Philip Murawski has has written about uh, on this section regarding information economics, cybernetics, and and the rise of neoliberalism. Um, whereas for you, there is also, as you say, a, a, the particular role of of technology in this story and and technological change. Um, I mean, how how much is this a the the development of our contemporary theories of of information? To what extent do you attribute that to to changes in in technology it, it's very uh, difficult to say it in two or, uh, or three sentences uh, yeah. but um, let me make a first step um, so it I think it's important to realize that financial markets stock exchange um, um, the dynamics on uh, credit uh, and capital markets uh, that these dynamics are um, um, uh, driven by what I would call opinion markets. Um, mm. This means um, this is not uh, the market in which you invest uh, knowledge, but in which you have to react quickly, in which uh, you have to uh, capture the occasion, um, and uh, in which the operational systems uh, are uh, determined by what one could be the unexpected. This means simply information. Information is mm. something new which must be captured. And um, the thesis, one of the theses in this book is that um, the development of financial markets uh, is characterized by the structure of opinion markets on the one hand side. And on the other hand, uh, uh, at the end, after the uh, birth and um, the um, uh, take off of platform companies, of platform industry and social media, yeah, you can say that um, on this other end of the history, um, the uh, information markets are structured like financial markets uh, mm. on the technological level. 
This means on the technological level, uh, financial markets are opinion markets, and on the uh, technological uh, level, opinion markets, like in social media, are structured like financial markets. Right, um, and and for those listeners who who are not familiar with 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 the kind of theory of information, yeah. could you say a bit about how the idea of information differs from um, other um, Western ideals of, of of scientific knowledge? I mean, as as might have been as you know, might have been privileged by the scientific revolution and and, and since. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, the problem is how to um, um, integrate something like news, uh, something like um, um, uh, statements, something like um, information in a common sense uh, can be integrated in um, technological systems. And for information theory and technological systems, information in a strict sense is simply uh, something which is statistically uh, improbable. Um, uh, what is probable has no information value. The improbable has an information uh, value. You can name the new the surprising, uh, the unexpected. So mm. information irritates the system, the technological system, by being unexpected and causes reaction and reactions of reactions, etc. Right. So the problem is how to integrate news and information in our common sense, for example, uh, that Putin uh, was visited by the um, prime minister or uh, whatever um, of China, um, uh, how to uh, integrate it or put it in an information system. And this means mm. the new uh, is always something which is privileged in this information system. And you can also go further and say, uh, if someone says uh, the, the world is round, this has no information value. But mm. when you say, and if you say the world is flat like a pizza, this has a huge information value mm. and is be, it's distributed in the system. Right. So, uh, and and from what you, you you've been saying, um, and, and as I read the book, so you're saying that this, as a theory of information, this 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 idea of information dates yeah. back far longer than the development of information theory in the 1930s and 1940s. Yeah, in a, in a certain sense, because uh, uh, also the earliest uh, um, theories about uh, stock exchange markets mm. uh, um, uh, already knew that uh, the market in a stock exchange, for example, in Amsterdam uh, in the 17th century, was always irritated by uh, opinions, uh, by rumors, uh, by uh, opinions of opinions, etc. Uh, this means by all what was transported into um, uh, into the system, and uh, uh, it was, I think, uh, important for these early theories to um, uh, realize that the difference between true and false information is not a real distinction, uh, because an opinion about, um, for example, an asset can be much more important in the market than the real value of this mm -hmm. asset. And this means that uh, the, even early uh, 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 financial theory begins to uh, reflect the economic importance of 
um, opinions. And um, give a second example. Um, Keynes, for example, in his um, general theory, he compared um, financial markets, um, the markets in stock exchange, yeah, uh, capital markets, with a beauty contest. Uh, and the beauty contest consists in uh, um, um, forming your own opinion in expecting other opinions about something which could be called beauty. Right. So in that sense, the sort of divisions you've said between kind of fact and falsehood dissolve, but also one of the interesting features of the of, of your analysis, given that there's a lot of, uh, you know, before we get on back onto the topic of kind of populism and, yeah. and nationalism, which, I mean, you know, a, a conventional liberal um, critique of, 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 of populist developments in, in, in Europe and North America and elsewhere is that this is a sort of people are being kind of seized by their emotions and that people have become oblivious to reason and, and, and mm. to fact. Um, whereas your uh, historical analysis shows that actually that within the logic of financial markets, that distinction, not just the distinction between sort of truth and falsehood, but the distinction between reason and unreason is also suspended. Yeah. And uh, in this respect, I made a strict uh, distinction between knowledge on the one hand side mm -hmm. and information on the other side. Knowledge right. and information are not equal. Right. Um, so... Um, information would include um, uh, uh, affective responses or the affective responses of others and so on. So in that sense, it's a sort of financial markets are the kind of entry point of, of, the, of, 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 of emotion into, into um, uh, this, this sphere. Yeah, um, and, and this means, uh, uh, sorry for interrupting yeah. you, but uh, this means that uh, information can be uh, operationalized by uh, communication systems and knowledge uh, uh, is strictly bound to uh, analog procedures. This means mm -hmm. uh, open procedures, research, uh, and, um, uh, and um, even with uh, a sort of uh, path which may be uh, end in dead ends or have to return, whatever. So it cannot mm. be uh, operationalized in these systems. Right, okay. So um, an example of knowledge in that respect would be what, sort of scientific publishing or something like that? For example, with, uh, something, but also experimentation. Uh, right. Experimentation, and uh, this means a, an open horizon of, uh, um, of um, uh, intellectual, practical, technological mm. development, uh, mm. um, which which cannot be um, 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 which cannot be scaled. Yeah, um, and in terms of the kind of so you know it's interesting. So I was thinking about the kind of origins for one of the things which I think is is so interesting about your work is that you kind of push the search for origins much further back in time than is often yeah. done. So there's a lot of histories of cybernetics and of and information mm. theory that go back to World War II. But you would go back way, way further. I mean, you know, do you have any kind of sort of points of origin that you would you would point to? Are there particular technological innovations that you think are, are, are decisive? Such as, yeah. you know, for instance, Weber and the, the double entry bookkeeping or something like that. Um, I would say, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm interested in the history of financial economy mm. with uh, accent on financial economy mm. on the one hand side. And I'm interested in uh, uh, the history of theory of financial markets. Mm. Right. And um, uh, I would say um, um, a first 
interesting uh, uh, starting point is very very early in uh, uh, late medieval times, uh, early modern times, and this means uh, these are the northern Italian um, uh, republics like uh, uh, Genova, for example. And uh, there you have, and this is for, was a very important point for me, uh, you have uh, the integration of private financiers into public uh, government. And this created a first consortium, which uh, was a very important financial, but also political power uh, since the 14th century. So the Genovese Republic financed, uh, for example, the Habsburg uh, uh, Empire in uh, Spain. Uh, mm. They financed also um, uh, part of Netherlands, etc. This was a public-private consortium in which uh, financial power and political power merged. This would be uh, one of uh, of this, mm. uh, 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 I would say, original scenes. Mm. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, let's. You mentioned already about kind of opinion markets and how yeah. effectively what what I mean, many people would call platforms. I mean, you talk about platforms in the book and and social media and and, and there's been endless discussion of how Facebook and and Twitter and other things have have kind of affected politics over the last um, kind of fifteen twenty years or so. Yeah. Um, is it fair to say that you would read those uh, sort of platform capitalism? As, as a kind of pretty much a continuation of these sort of processes that had already afflicted um, financial markets from the 1970s onwards. Because obviously the kind of computation of financial markets from the late 1960s onwards through to the late 1980s has a very important effect in terms of the, the, the rapid expansion, acceleration and globalization of, of finance. Um, is this, would, would you describe social media and and platforms as 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 a sort of just a continuation of those of those effects I would say it, uh, it's probably one of the last transformation of modern capitalism, uh, the transformation from financial capitalism to informational uh, capitalism. And uh, this is due to the fact that uh, first, we have completely new forms of enterprises, of companies uh, like um, platform industry, like social media. We can talk about it later if you want. And second, uh, you have uh, new um, forms of uh, which I would call digital um, digital um, expropriation. Um, and this means um, the problem of this new industry was how to commercialize information. How can you extract value uh, out of information? Because information is something which cannot be consumed. You can consume mm -hmm. wine, you can uh, consume fuel, you consume uh, whatever, uh, but information cannot be consumed by being used. So mm -hmm. this was uh, the very important problem and a very interesting problem for these companies how to produce commodities out of information mm. and this uh, followed uh, and this is uh, i would say a very intelligent but also very simple procedure um, this uh, was uh, realized by um, integrating people like us users into the system offering priceless goods like apps like whatever, no? search machines, uh, navigation aids, uh, etc. Um, so um, uh, producing something like a consumer who uh, has no longer to pay for his services, but 
is the object of extraction of information. This means data and metadata. And under the condition that the one who produces data and metadata, you and me, by using um, uh, the internet, um, has no access to his own data and metadata. This is the simple and very efficient system to um, um, to um, uh, to uh, yeah to make something which I would call digital uh, expropriation. Yeah. Um, one thing which I, I think I, at one point you um, cite uh, Jean-François Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition, and, and I think approvingly, I think you're you're, you're sort of enthusiastic about that book and it and, and it's interesting because as i was as i was reading your book and i was you know reflecting a bit on that book which i think was 1979 so in that sense quite kind of early um which i suppose that some of the similarities are firstly firstly that, that there's a sort of an attention to information technology in that book combined with an with an attention to the um privatization of of knowledge in one kind or another without perhaps the same kind of attention to sort of what information is to the same extent um, I mean, how far do you think the, the sort of theory of, of, of postmodernity might help us now? I know, I mean, there was a lot of literature on it in the 1990s and perhaps less so now. But is that is that a, a concept that you that you, you believe is useful at all or, or, or have we sort of moved beyond that? That's a good question. So I would say uh, it is useful um, if uh, the range of its um, application is very narrow. Mm -hmm. So you can, for example, uh, um, reasonably um, uh, use uh, the term postmodernity for architecture uh, right. because they, uh, you have a certain style which can be identified like the Rococo. Uh, it's a modern mm -hmm. Rococo is uh, postmodernity. Um, and uh, also in, um, uh, in uh, the sense Lyotard used um, um, postmodernity, I think it, make, it makes sense to describe a certain switch between um, 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 a society which is dominated by industry and production uh, to a science, uh, a society which is dominated by services and uh, especially financial economy. Uh, also, mm -hmm. this switch uh, could be uh, could be referred to with this uh, notion of postmodernity, but it does not make sense uh, as the expression of a global epochal um, 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 transformation, uh, because um, very fast the term a concept of postmodernity was used to denounce to denounce mm. the French philosophers uh, to denounce a certain literary style, etc. No? Uh, I think uh, it can make only sense in a very strict and concrete use. Right. I mean, in that sense, I suppose some of the forces of, of postmodernity, I guess, perhaps, according to your thesis, are, are as old as modernity, or perhaps even older than modernity, in the sense that this yeah. kind of way in which information is, 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 is pushing against knowledge is something that, that predates the, the scientific yeah. revolution. Yeah, there's, there's, one could make a, an interesting observation if a postmodernity is linked to, um, yeah, how uh, should we call it, to uh, signifiers which float, for example, mm. without yeah. a fixed, um, uh, without a fixed meaning or without a fixed referent, uh, etc. Um, uh, if you um, take this uh, as an uh, quality, you can link it. Um, and this is uh, an important um, um, 
date in financial history, um, you can link it to the end of um, the agreement of Bretton Woods, for example, mm -hmm. yeah, when uh, um, the uh, currency um, currencies begin to float, yeah, when uh, the gold standard was abolished, etc. So mm -hmm. this could be an interesting um, um, date linking uh, the question of semiotics to the question of finance. Yeah. Um, maybe we could move to the the second half of your book's title, which is Resentiment. Um, and this is a concept which is, I guess, perhaps most famously associated with Nietzsche's analysis of it, uh, in which this a desire for retribution and punishment, which can never be satisfied. And I think that, I mean, just to to, to clarify for the benefit of, 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 of some listeners, it is not quite as simple as resentment, which is uh, a, a potentially um, a, 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 a something that could be satisfied with some kind of settlement or compensation, which is a sort of sense of an injustice. This is a kind of much more um, kind of entrenched feeling of unhappiness which seeks out uh, mm. someone uh, to blame um and you have a really um fascinating and 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 to me very kind of original and 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 <laughs> i could say informative um uh, take on, on on this which is the, yeah. about how resentiment is entangled with the history of capitalism and particularly with the uh moments of of financial crisis could you, and obviously, that, I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book yeah. about this, so I, I'm at the risk of asking you to kind of cover all of that. Could you just sort of try to encapsulate yeah. some of what these connections are? Because obviously Nietzsche was much more interested in connections between Christianity and resentment yeah. and so on, whereas you've got this a kind of an economic and specifically a financial history of, of resentment. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the conditions uh, of this uh, perspective um, uh, to uh, ressentiment, history of uh, ressentiment, is first uh, the notion of capitalism itself. Mm. Because uh, uh, the term, uh, the concept of capitalism um, uh, was used uh, by uh, Werner Sombart, uh, Max Weber, around 1900. Um, uh, uh, by the way, uh, Karl Marx didn't use uh, the notion of uh, capitalism. And uh, this um, beginning of capitalism and the concept of capitalism um, um, uh, meant that capitalism is not only an economic system. Uh, capitalism is not only a legal system, is not only an effect of some business practices, but it's also a question of, um, for example, mentalities of effects uh, like Protestantism in uh, Max Weber, like Catholicism in Werner Sombart, etc. So capitalism can only be explained by something which we can uh, call irrational rationality. So some irrationality is necessary to keep capitalist uh, um, uh, economy moving. Uh, this is uh, the condition. And uh, uh, and then you can see that in the 19th century, um, a very broad spectrum of uh, authors uh, think about something which can be called ressentiment. Uh, you find it in Tocqueville and his uh, observation on um, um, uh, United States. You can uh, see it uh, in Nietzsche uh, and his theory of ressentiment. You can see it in Kierkegaard in his observation to the pre of the present. And you can see it uh, uh, some uh, years later in Max who interprets the interpretation of Nietzsche himself. And in all these observations, um, uh, uh, we have a certain um, statement of 
social change in the uh, 19th century, a social change which is caused by liberalism and by capitalism. And this means, first, a system of competition. Uh, second, um, the erosion of solidarity milieus. And finally, the installment, the installation of a sort of uh, 300 uh, uh, and 60 degree evaluation, evaluation uh, and uh, evaluation of evaluation, etc. And um, um, so uh, uh, the liberal society, the market society for these authors is um, uh, the case of, um, if you want, an anti-social socialization, um, a socialization uh, which um, um, destroys social coherence into atoms, uh, the atomization of society. And I think this was uh, the main perspective um, linking the development of capitalism with a certain transformation of modern societies under the sign of liberalism. Uh, and, and, and so what's the, in terms of the connection between capitalism and ressentiment, um, I mean, what, what is it about? So, so it's the it's the logic of competition. It's the logic of individualism. But where does this particular kind of um, affective disposition come into the to the story that you're telling? Yeah, in a, in a kind of negative socialization. Yeah. This means yeah. uh, negative unity of uh, negative reciprocity. Right. Uh, this is a formulation by Kierkegaard. But um, um, there's a se second observation. There's a second observation which uh, was made by historians uh, and uh, historical uh, statistics, uh, which realized that uh, um, the series of financial crises from um, uh, the Grinder crisis, uh, uh, this means uh, 70s of the uh, 19th century, uh, Weimar Republic, and then 2007 and 2008, all these banking and financial crises were linked to um, the uh, movement of first anti-Semitic and xenophobic and uh, um, um, right-wing and even in Germany fascist parties in the Weimar mm. Republic. So, um, um, uh, and this leads, and this is important to say, this leads to the thesis that the social reason of ressentiment, the social uh, circulation of ressentiment is a sort of um, self-criticism of capitalism without abolishing capitalism. Mm -hmm. So uh, in um, the effect of ressentiment, uh, you have an interpretation of social reality, which is characterized by capitalism, and which via ressentiment can be rescued um, and um, uh, can be uh, in which, once more, sorry for that, um, in which ressentiment is a sort of transformer of criticism against capitalism into, uh, if you want, some personal representance, like mm -hmm the Jewish banker, uh, like the European bureaucrat, like uh, the European um, worker coming to Great Britain, etc. So transforming of a capitalist crisis uh, into a critique, which uh, at the end is nothing other than the rescue of capitalist um, economy.
Yeah. So what then struck liberal democracies in the kind of mid 2010s or, or in that sense is a kind of a, a, a fallout from financial crisis in a, in a, in a, in a fairly um, in, in, in a way that has happened several times throughout history. I mean, did, did you, well, I'm not to say, did you predict that, but when, as these things happened, were you already aware of those histories and those, those, those earlier examples, or, or is this a sort of historical work you've done in, 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 in attempt to try and understand things like, you know, AFD and, and, and Brexit mm. and so on. No, I think my uh, my starting point was uh, simply um, 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 to uh, um, uh, to grasp um, a movement which I didn't really understand, mm. and this meant. Um, the movement uh, being which these sort of nationalists, these new nationalists. Yeah, not, not, yeah. not only this. Uh, uh, so uh, first, to understand uh, what happens in social mm. media, how uh, the public sphere is transformed mm -hmm. in social media, and this means completely transforms, transformed in um, uh, social media. And second, how this is linked to business model of mm. enterprises and companies, uh, which are the uh, most expensive companies in the world, like mm. Google, like Facebook, like Apple, um, and also uh, like Amazon, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there was a certain evidence that uh, um, the most modern capitalist companies, on the one hand side, uh, produce uh, a completely different public sphere on the mm -hmm. other side. And the question how this can come together, how can this linked together is a certain, um, um, is, is a certain causality. Yeah, I mean, there's almost a coincidence here, and I, I've heard it described as a as a kind of rather extraordinary historical coincidence that things like, I mean, Facebook really took off round about the same time as the the credit crisis. The uh, uh, the, the the iPhone became smartphones became kind of normalized round about sort of 2010 and this sort of thing. So there's this sort of strange kind of conjunctural yeah. simultaneity where those previous financial crises you mentioned in the 1870s and the 1930s and so on in there were not the what you call the opinion markets. Yeah. They were not available. Yeah. So what we're witnessing then is kind of two things happening side by side. Um, is that, would would you agree with that, or do you think that there was some sort of you know is there a sort of a, a common thread linking? Uh, I guess you could say Silicon Valley and, and Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So um, first, I would completely agree if you say that uh, these um, uh, links are in a certain way contingent. There mm. is historical contingency, uh, and you cannot um, you cannot um, construct um, uh, construe uh, construct construe. Yeah. Uh, construe, I think, in this case. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what you're you, cannot, say. You, yeah, you, you cannot construe uh, strict causalities. Uh, so yeah. there's historical contingency. But I think uh, there's an important um, uh, date uh, which must be mentioned to make this link between uh, capitalist economy, financial economy, and finally platform economy or uh, internet providers. And this is uh, 1996. Um, mm. uh, uh, two laws in the United States. Uh, uh, the first law uh, simply um, um, uh, 
prioritized private enterprises in the mm. public net. It was uh, a law to privatize uh, the internet, which um, mm. began to work. First um, part. Second part, it's uh, the Communications, uh, Communication Decency Act, um, mm. Section 230, a very important uh, law. Uh, and this law made the distinction between um, uh, intermediary on the one hand side and publisher on mm. the other side. And uh, the, uh, to promote the internet technically and economic, economically, um, uh, this jurisdiction said that who is distributing content um, in the internet and does not moderate it, uh, only the content of third party, uh, this enterprise, this provider is not responsible um, for uh, the delivered content. He, he, uh, it is not um, responsible as a publisher. And this made a very important distinction between intermediary and publisher and means that uh, the distributor of the most information in the world, like Facebook, um, is not responsible for the information published. Um, and I think uh, this made internet companies, internet provider to a very attractive um, um, investment for financial markets. Yeah. Um, uh, because uh, you have uh, the combination of two um, of two exceptions. On the one hand is the exceptionalism of uh, capital uh, um, uh, capital assets, uh, which um, also um, um, yeah, in legal system um, uh, have a certain privilege um, in relation, for example, to income, etc. Uh, in, um, yeah, there is a privilege of private capital in the markets. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you have now the exceptionalism of internet providers. Uh, this means enterprises which are not responsible for the products which with which they made the profit. And mm. the combination of these two uh, exceptions or exceptionalisms uh, created the new kind of information capitalism. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very, very clear. Um, I just I wanted to, I guess, draw things to a close with, with uh, a couple of questions. One is... Um, you do in the book um, offer some kind of quite tentative analysis of, of how these particular platforms um, enable or, or nurture some of the what, what are often called populist movements, but you're kind of rather hesitant. You don't want to kind of go too far in sort of drawing any kind of strong causal connection. But in that sense, it seems to me that the the sort of where the where, where the book kind of gets to uh, as a the, the, in some sense where it's all kind of heading towards is how uh, this account of information as something which is antagonistic knowledge uh, combined with this spirit of resentment which is nurtured in the context of financial crises and their aftermath uh, is then sort of um, given a huge um, is then inflated and accelerated by these opinion markets. Um, I mean, what, in your view, how should we understand the role of, say, Facebook in, 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 in democracy right now? Because there's been a lot of attention to that, but you have quite a, uh, you, you bring a much broader historical and philosophical context to, to that question. And it's a question which many people have been trying to understand. 
Yeah. So on the one hand, I think um, Zuckerberg was very clear. He said uh, mm. uh, Facebook was responsible for um, the election of the Hindu um, nationalist uh, president in India, for example. Mm. And he uh, also uh, uh, said that um, uh, Trump wouldn't have been elected without uh, Facebook. Uh, mm. um, 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 even uh, Brexit uh, was um, supported and even organized mm. by um, uh, data uh, collection of Facebook. Facebook, etc. So there's a very clear uh, understanding which uh, um, um, gives no range for interpretation. But uh, I think uh, if you uh, look on the business model, um, which is which is um, organized technically, you can simply say that uh, the business model of social platforms like Facebook uh, consists in um, uh, polarizing society and Mm. in uh, creating uh, something which I would call pseudo uh, communities. This means uh, communities which are organized by some cultural assets, uh, for example, Mm. and uh, which uh, lead not to an opening of particular uh, social communities into a universal democratic Mm. horizon, but on the contrary, um, affirms, uh, creates um, uh, particular um, uh, societies, uh, pseudo-societies, which um, are, um, um, uh, yeah, uh, exist in a certain hostile um, communication with others. Mm, yeah. And there, um, uh, what I call ressentiment, has not uh, the notion of a feeling, but um, the uh, notion of a social structure. Mm. Uh, uh, ressentiment becomes, in a polarized societies, the social structure itself. Right. Yeah. Um, I just one one final question, which is kind of, I guess, more about your own uh, uh, approach and 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 intellectual biography, perhaps. Which is, I mean, you know, you you write in this way that uh, is uh, beautifully interdisciplinary, and it, and it, and there's it a lot of attention to the history of finance in it. But then you also are kind of quite free to move into philosophy and and literature and and all these other areas. Um, I mean, partly, I. I, I one way of asking my question is, is is sort of how do you understand your your sort of intellectual position in, in all of this or what what do you understand yourself uh, doing in, in in a kind of disciplinary sense but another way of asking the same question is kind of what's the key historical actor in this because i mean capital i mean if, if you were a marxist it would be relatively clear what is actually driving this but there are times when i'm i'm curious to know what are the sort of what's the sort of motor uh, of history for you i know that's a rather rather grand ontological question but i'd be interested to, for you to reflect a bit about and, and also in the ascendancy of finance as well this sort of kind of what what, what what's pushing this so first um uh, concerning my self-understanding i would say um uh I, I would localize myself in a very unorthodox branch of critical theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this means uh, critical theory, um, which uh, has no problem with um, uh, Karl Marx uh, and uh, Michel Foucault at the same time, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which can adopt positions by Gilles Deleuze also, uh, uh, by um, um, uh, by uh, Habermas, uh, etc. Um, so I, I would say um, uh, it's the intention to uh, um, um, to uh, uh, pursue a certain 
filiation of critical theory and to re-import economic knowledge into critical mm. theory, which uh, uh, was absent, I think, in the last years, especially in Germany. Mm. And uh, what is uh, the uh, uh, historical force, your ontological question? I would say um, uh, it's, uh, and in this respect, I am very near to Michel Foucault, um, it's the question of government. Um, is mm. the question how uh, societies, our societies govern themselves and by which means they are governing themselves. And under this perspective, um, um, financial economy for me, is not simply an economic fact or an economic branch or an economic uh, whatever dynamic, but it is a very important element of governance and government in our societies. And um, this uh, 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 elementary question uh, of government, uh, governing the others, governing oneself, governing uh, the relation between people and the relation between people and things, etc. Uh, so this, I think, is the driving force. Uh, uh, which uh, for me uh, consists uh, in uh, in history. Yeah, great. Uh, Joseph Virgil, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much.